You can hack it. Episode one: Blood Tokens and Inner Wicked Age. One, two, three. Android, are you ready? Come on. You are listening to You Can Hack It, an RPG podcast about how you can hack it, both as a player and GM, and also how to add, replace, or modify rules. I'm John, and I'm Kyle. Each show will be starting off the discussion about a hack which we've created, witnessed, or been involved in some way. So now, Kyle, should we get to the hack? On to the hack. Warning, You Can Hack It has a lot of profanity. So, what do I mean by a hack? Well, for our purposes, we've divided into three areas. The first area is adding. Now, adding is where you leave the system untouched, but you add something to it. It's like having a baked cake with all the icing and decorations on it, and then you add the cherry on top. It's not necessarily essential, but it can make it so much more delicious. Now, the second type of hack we're going to discuss is, is replacing. Like replacing the engine in a car. The car looks the same, but drives a lot smoother, hopefully, and looks, and inside it's a hell of a lot different. And the third is modifying. This is where you take an existing system and change the rules, but you often keep the core or essential rules that is a key feature of the system. This could be like renovating a house, where the structure of the house stays the same, but you might repaint the place, tear down some walls, or replace the roof. But the heart of the house, those old reliable timbers, is what holds the whole house up together. And you're just making changes that you hope will make the house more functional and livable. Because it's worth just fixing up, not changing it, and not ready to be torn down. So now, Kyle, should we get to the hack? On to the hack. Fit all the gaming podcasts you possibly can inside your head with RPGpodcasts.com. All right, today the hack we are discussing is something called Blood Tokens. Now, this is an addition hack to the 4th edition Dungeons & Dragons role-playing system. So, 4th edition Dungeons & Dragons, or 4th ed, the characters in this game have powers. And there's a daily, and there's... uh, the encounter. Encounter powers, thank you, John. And sometimes they just don't hit. And sometimes you get a whole run of bad luck and you keep missing. This can be really frustrating, especially with those big powers. You have those big daily powers, only used once per day, and you really want to give it to the boss. But it, it fails. So what do you do about that? Well, that's where blood tokens come in and the addition to the fourth ed game. John? Well, blood tokens are essentially small, we use, we use little red gems, which is where they uh, took the name from. Now, essentially the way it works is whenever you fail a roll of any kind, any d20 roll, this could be a miss in combat, this could be a failed skill roll, you receive one of these little gems, and they go into a pool. So the pool is then available, and it adds up over time. Now, once you decide that you want to use these blood tokens, you can spend them. You have to spend them all. And once you spend them all, it gives you a plus two bonus to your attack per blood token you've accumulated. Now, you could save them, spend them all for that critical moment, and you could overspend it quite, quite happily, actually, to make sure that that big hit hits. But sometimes, you have all these little, little small times here and there. You can just add a plus two here. You have to do the whole pile, but you get small little piles to spend it. And that's one of the tactics you can certainly use. To talk about where this initially came from, a good friend of ours uh, named Mike was the sort of the originator of this idea. He was working with his brother Scott, and uh, they came up with this idea. It was actually Scott's game where we, actually both John and I were playing it, and we experienced and used the system, uh, the edition. And we found it worked really, really well. 
uh, one of the nice things about it is we actually were okay with missing. Eh? We just viewed it as 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 planning, as as preparation, as as storing up energy for that big hit later. It, what it actually also ended up doing was meant we use a lot more of our uh, just standard powers more often, or at will powers. At will, you can use as much as you want. We'd use those more often, and just to get those extra points and hope we'd miss in some ways. Now, do you have an example of where you use them? <laughs> 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 oh, we were doing so well, the bubble uh, was going. And. Penis. Fuck. Oh, I punted, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> <clears throat> <clears throat> so, <laughs> sorry, I, sorry. I never know what fucking powers I have. I can't remember anymore. Uh, there's what I can't. What's the allowing me to shift people? There's one. Oh, fuck me. Uh, Knight's Castle, Castling. <laughs> some sort of like chess reference. We suck. We're terrible. We're terrible podcasters. Alright. Um, uh, anyways, specific example. <clears throat> so, I don't know, when I was playing Fighter, actually, first off, Fighters often have powers that are reliable, so I didn't actually need blood tokens quite as much as that. But if I wanted to hit to hit, I wanted to spend blood tokens. Now, maybe I had a pool of three tokens. That'd be a total bonus of plus six. Let's say I need to hit 21. And. I roll the 15. I go, fuck, I missed. But I go, I have plus 6. That equals 21. I can spend the whole pile. Now I've hit. And we go on with the game. Now, one of the interesting things about this uh, is that essentially you can roll first. And that is actually the biggest refinement to it. You could look at the roll and go, damn it, I missed. Now I'm going to spend these blood tokens to make myself hit. And that, uh, again, is a big morale booster for, for those really critical daily abilities, which are super cool if they actually go off. If they don't go off, it's not, a phys it's not an excuse explosion, it's a fizzle. As we've mentioned, it makes missing a strategy in itself. Now, I really like this. I personally think that uh, Blood Token should be a part of anyone's game, uh, simply because the encounter powers and the daily powers are just so precious. And it's, it's so mind-numbingly crushing when you have this amazing ability. Uh, for example, I was playing a rogue in the, the same game, and some of my abilities, they're not reliable like the fucking fighter gets to be. <laughs> bitch. And I, unfortunately, if I, my stuff misses, then I look like an ass. So being able to, to pull that stuff off in the critical time really means something. And it also means I can sort of wander around and, 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 and miss a couple of times. It's not so bad using my at-will abilities, but when I get to that critical point flanking the opponent, getting ready to attack, spending all those uh, all those blood token points I've accumulated over rounds and rounds of missing. It feels pretty good to be able to throw those blood tokens on the table and say, no, 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 I hit. And the blood tokens, I agree with John, they were uh, a great addition, I think. And it, it makes missing fun. And you, in some ways you use your at-will abilities more too, which I think is kind of neat. Um, you kind of save your counter powers and daily powers, especially the daily powers. And you don't, even if you have an opportunity to hit the enemy, you might decide to wait so you can miss some more and get some more blood tokens and then make the big hit later. So it really kind of changes the, the structure of the game when you decide to commit. Which brings us to some of the problematic parts of the blood tokens because it does change how you play the game. Now before, 
whiffing or, or missing, as they as they used to call it. I remember a person calling it whiffing, where they literally, literally yeah. like the the, the the swing and a miss. The sound of the bat. The sound of the bat is the the ball goes by you. It changes play, which means that you are now looking for opportunities to miss. Uh, I remember uh, being prone and staying prone because I had a better chance of missing. <laughs> in order to build up the blood tokens I needed. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, I guess that I guess it does encourage uh, a chance to be a little more dramatic, like you can start giving yourself looking for penalties as opposed to looking for bonuses. And that may be initially a, a bit of a paradigm shift to get used to, where before you're looking to get higher, you're looking to get uh, a better sort of positioning. When you're trying to miss, you're looking for as many penalties as possible. And it's a very amusing sort of situation when you're like, yeah, 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 and I, I think I, I'm gonna gonna walk in this wet patch, and that gives me a negative, and I'm gonna be uh, stumbling, and that's a negative, and I'm gonna be using my weapon in my wrong hand, and there's another negative. But that really changes things, and it can be uh, problematic, uh, especially if uh, that's not how people are used to playing. And it depends on the players, to be honest, and how they decide to to play with the blood tokens. Um, we had actually another addition to this game called Destiny Points, which we'll talk about another time. But hey, really, another time? I'm sorry, John. Another time. I want to talk about Destiny Points. Um, but the balance of the game didn't seem to be affected too much. So when the GM would actually set up a game, as far as I could tell, uh, excluding Destiny Points, the blood tokens didn't really change the way he'd set up the monsters we'd encounter, which I think is neat. That is very true. Uh, he didn't actually need to change much at all the monsters. Um, I know that he did make the encounters very difficult simply because we didn't go through a lot of sessions. There were quite a few of us playing. I think it was five people, six people? I think it was five at max. Yeah, it was five people that were playing, and, and it was uh, very, very busy, and we didn't usually get a lot of encounters done. So he would usually hammer us for all three uh, encounters that we usually get through. Now, we should talk a little bit about some refinements to this. Uh, yes. One of the big refinements that we discussed... Uh, regarding blood tokens, a couple of uh, changes we made to them late in the game. Uh, I think the first one had to do with attacking other people? It's or, when, sorry, uh, when, helping other people? Yes. When, when another person would attack, before they rolled, not after, you could choose to spend your blood tokens, again, the whole pool, on the other person, and to give them the bonus before they'd roll. Uh, and then hope, hopefully they would actually make use of it. But sometimes it wouldn't even guarantee a hit, because sometimes they might roll a 1, and they still miss. And that is a gamble. That was one of the things we wanted to include, was the ability to help other players with our own tokens, but at a, at a cost of it being uncertain. Um, and I found that to be really rewarding, because when we really wanted someone to hit, we wanted someone else to really succeed, we were able to physically hand them the information. Now this is actually uh, reminiscent of a couple of different sources. Uh, one of the really good examples of this is taken directly from Primetime Adventures, using uh, the fan mail mechanic from that game yes, right. uh, to help other people. Um, and I think the second one uh, is very similar to this, uh, spending points beforehand, is actually something called Arda in uh, Burning Wheel. Uh, this was used as well, ah. uh, where you can spend uh, a form of currency called uh, Persona beforehand to affect your role. Oh, is that the same as Mouse Guard? Actually, yeah, they're actually the exact same, uh, not exact same system, but they're, they're, they're built with the same designer, and he uses similar uh, ideas. We're hopefully going to play that uh, at some point. I'm going to get the gift rolled out. That'll be fun. It will be, I'm hoping. We just got to get eight people. <laughs> All right, so... Blood tokens. Go for them. What do you think? Try them out. Try it with your group. See how they like it. And uh, have fun playing 4th Ed. Don't let those naysayers keep you down from 4th Ed. 4th Ed, it is, it's awesome. It, it can be really fun, really. 
Fuck them. <laughs> Fuck them all, y'all. Play like you have to. Play like you have to. Play like you have to. Brilliant Gameologists, a podcast for tabletop games and the gamers who play them. Come into the light at brilliantgameologists.com. This is a review segment, and today we're looking at In a Wicked Age. It's by Vincent Baker, who's also done Dogs in the Vineyard. And if you want to check the, uh, other, any of his games out, you can go online to Lumpley Games, and we'll include links in the show notes. So, what is this game? John? This game is a narrative mindfuck by a narrative mindfucker. John, I think you can do better. <laughs> can I? <laughs> can I do better? That's a good pun. Ah, uh, shit. How to explain it? The best description I can think of is sword and sorcery fantasy. I think that if you've read any Robert E. Howard, if you've read um, uh, anything by uh, the Fafrat and the Great Mauser series, even some Ursula Gwynn stuff, uh, this is the sort of thing. It's sweaty, it's it's dirty, it's it's uh, it's messy, messy fantasy role-playing at its best. And uh, I have to say that initially was not very sure about this game, but after having a couple of uh, very smart people, uh, Kyle included, and a couple of his friends figure out how the rules worked, uh, I gotta say I'm a convert. So why don't we talk about how the game works, how it gets about creating uh, the story, and then move from there. Uh, do you want to start or should I? So we have oracles first, right? You That's right. I'll talk about oracles a little bit. So before the game starts, um, you literally come to the game without any planning. You sit down and you have a deck of cards, a bunch of dice, some pens, paper, and the deck of cards is used, drawn randomly. You draw four cards, and these cards are referenced to one of four different oracles that are included with the book. Essentially, the oracles are, for every playing card piece, you have some sort of event, some sort of situation. One example I remember very distinctly is a caravan heading east laden with spices. Now, you've got to take that from the oracle, and that becomes a cornerstone, a piece of the story, and you end up getting four of these. Now, from there, once you have the oracles, you have these four different pieces. Then, well, you move on to character creation. So, in character creation, there's a number of things you're looking at. First of all, you, you want to pull from the oracles. There's characters provided in the oracles. You might have a sorcerer who is wanting, who's doing dark sacrifices, or a, We'll take you an example. The caravan heading east, laden with spices. What characters are from that? What can we grab from there? You might have the caravan leader. You might think, well, who could be part of the caravan? Maybe there's slaves attached to it. Maybe there is other travelers with it. Or caravan guard. So looking at these settings, looking at these four oracles, you want to pull together, pull out characters. And any character that is explicit in the oracle, it's generally suggested that the... Is it called a GM in this game? I believe it's called the GM. I think that's what Vincent uses. The GM should make an NPC referring to that character to evolve him in the game. So, character creation. Well, like I said, figure out a concept. Well, once you have a concept, then you move to best interests. Each person has two of these. Your best interests are being direct conflict with other people. Because that's the point of the game. You want to be conflicting with others. Now, when you mean other people, do you mean the, just the GM, or do you mean the other players? Specifically other players. The GM, he's there to help with the conflict when it's not going along well, but you really want to be conflicting with other players that have best interests that conflict with theirs. Now, does this just mean that it's a competitive game, Kyle, or what are we talking about? I'd say so, yeah. <laughs> yeah you're, you're, you're trying to injure and exhaust the other players. One of the ways to knock a player out of the game, or a character out. Okay, so why don't we talk about the forms? Okay, so I'll actually... What, what are they? 
So forms are, when you're in a conflict, you choose two forms uh, when you're playing the game. And Could you give an example of like like what a form would be if we were playing D and D? Like what's the what's the, the comparison? The comparison would be if I'd use a power, let's say maybe in D and D, might be a good comparison. Right. And but in this case, I get to use two of them, so I get two types of dice. And so part of the mechanics of this game is you get a set number of different sized dices to go into six different areas: covertly, directly, for myself, for others, with love, and with violence. So I could act. In, in, in attacking you, I'd acted directly and with violence. And if I was that's sneaking right. up on you, I'd be acting covertly and with violence. Is you, that sort of a good example? That's a good example. Ooh, Though, okay. if you're sneaking up, you could decide to be doing it directly, maybe. You could be doing it with love. And as long as you can rationalize... Well, if I'm sneaking up from you behind with love... Uh, yeah, yeah. A, I guess, yeah, that, okay. All right, go I'm on. just saying, it could be done. Hey, man, <laughs> that's good stuff. Back to the best interests. <laughs> right. So, if John's character wants to save the princess, maybe I want to steal the princess. So and then we would have a conflict as a result of that to see who gets what they want. And so a lot of the times, when we could be in the same scene together, we'd be conflicting. You also have particular strengths, which just gives you a bit of an edge you can call in. It Maybe this particular strength might be that you're an honest man, which I actually played once, and so he had a unique one that was he had honesty, and it was linked to directly. Now, these particular strengths, um, I don't think everybody should have them. I think it even says in the book you don't necessarily need to have these things. It's something that sort of sets you apart. And in the game that we were playing, you were the only honest man. The man that was, that was honest and almost supernaturally so. Um, and that uh, caused a big difference in the game. Now, these particular strengths you said are linked to a specific form? That's right. So when you're using that form in the conflict, you could then call the particular strength it's linked to. So an honest man was linked to directly. So in a conflict, if I use directly, I could say, well, and I'm trying to convince somebody, and I'm being honest, I could say, I'm using, uh, I'm an honest man as a particular strength, and to get an extra dice. So that means they would get three dice, and the other person who didn't have a particular strength would only get two. Now, That's how right. does that work? Do, are the dice added together, or? That's not true, in fact. They are not added together. You roll all the dice, and then you choose the highest number. And the person who has the highest number is is the one who succeeds. And there's three rounds in the conflict. Each round has the first step's initiative, and the second step is the conflict itself to see who wins or loses the conflict. Or, the, or that, that's, that, that step of the conflict. There's a possibility of three of them. I guess if, uh, if you blow a person right out of the water, get more than, I think it's double, double. Uh, their, uh, their number, then it's over. Yes, that's with the second roll, because the first roll you can never be knocked out with the initiative. It's always that second roll that you can be knocked out with. Right. Uh, well, I think that's pretty good for character creation. I should talk about the old list. Now, this is a really uh, neat, a really neat innovation. I, like I should it. mention it. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. So, one of the things about uh, about this game is that uh, when you sit down, you're literally creating characters out of air, uh, using these oracles as a as a guide. But these characters, once they're created, uh, where do they go, and what happens to them? Well, part of the game, part of the, uh, and I guess since it's an advancement idea mechanic or, or a reward mechanic is that whenever you have your character at a significant disadvantage in a conflict, there's a chance that you can be added to what's called the O-List. The O-List is a good place to be because it means two things. One, that your character, even if he gets killed in this game, which is a possibility as a result of losing a conflict, 
you can be added to the O-list if you're able to survive the first round. Uh, now, if, if uh, my dice sizes are far smaller than Kyle's, I would be added to the, to, to the O-list if I was able to survive. I just have to make it by that first round, and then I'm on the O-list. It actually is interesting, because it, it forces you to really want to be at a disadvantage, because that's where really the, the interesting drama occurs. Uh, use your, your weaknesses and play your weaknesses uh, in terms of fighting other people. And use your stronger stuff against them and you to, to, to take advantage of their weaknesses. You get to win, but they get on the old list. Again, in a lot of ways, this is very similar to the, to the blood tokens. You do lose, but you still get something out of it. That's right. I, I would like to actually note to this is that I, remember, I can't remember who it was. Maybe it might have been Master Plan with Luke Crane talking about awards. Is that right? Yeah, I remember awards and advancement. It was a recent, uh, recent episode. Yes, really this which I think actually in a Wicked Age does what he says not to do. Because the O-list, you can get a dice, or you can, but you have to cross your name off it. Or if you stay on the O-list, you get to come back later. So you have to choose to come back later or get the bonus. That's right. Uh, there is a possibility if you are really getting hammered in the game, uh, and you're losing, and you really want to win, you can cross your name off the O-list. It's kind of like spending your future in order to affect today. Uh, it's kind of like dipping into your savings account. And, um, <laughs> and as I was saying, um, it, it sounds like almost a bad idea, but it's actually really cool, and it gets, it's like, just like John said, you're sacrificing your future for the present. It is an interesting exception to what he was talking about. Uh, and, and, I mean, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't works. think it, it really has a problematic piece in there. I, it does work, you're right. Yeah, because it's your choice, really. Like, and you don't. And there's other ways to be awesome, really. That's another thing. And you can be on the old list enough times that your name will come up eventually. Yeah. Uh, again, if usually the uh, the game goes by, there's about three to five conflicts per person, and depending on how much time there is. And yeah. then usually by then you're you're pretty battered. And that might even be a bit much, but yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking if you have a lot of players and you make it two conflicts, maybe maybe three. So, uh, what do we like about this? Why don't we talk about that? Well, you come to this game, you don't need any planning at all. In fact, if you plan for this game, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, he's very right. If, if you have an idea of what you want to do in this game, then you are going to be disappointed. Because the, the moment you arrive, you draw the cards, and the cards determine the game. So if you want to come playing a ninja, and suddenly you're drawing cards involving uh, Eastern, East Indian uh, uh, ivory trade, uh, your ninja is probably not going to work. I love it, because I never plan for games around anyway, so it's great. And then to be honest, I, I agree with you. I think I really love this, uh, the idea of the nil prep, because I'm an older guy. We're both older guys. We don't have time. Hey, hey. Talk for yourself. Yeah, okay. Well, you know what? Go for yourself. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So I'm, I'm 30-something, and uh, Kyle is 20-something. But uh, I'm sure even you, with, uh, with, with university and shit, you got a lot to do. And if you have to... Yeah. If you have to be a... Uh, GMing is hard, is hard for a lot of traditional games. This is not... A game where you have to spend hours and one hours and one hours prepping, doing eight hours of work for six hours of play or whatever the hell it is, um, which I which I have done. And in this case, you literally show up with a pen and a piece of paper, and if you played before, the old list, go. What I would say is that <laughs> the if you have the number of players actually makes a difference what the GM does too. If you have five players, let's say the GM probably has very little to do often because if you have that many players, they just provide conflict, and sometimes the GM sits there a little bored. Yeah, as a GM, you'd want to uh, have at least one punchy character that, that has some sort of conflict with someone. And in a lot yeah. of ways, I mean, the GM is kind of like a, in a lot of ways, like kind of like a banker in uh, Monopoly. He, uh, he he sort of just keeps the game running smoothly, remembers the rules, but he should participate in some way, shape, or form. I think it's, it's useful to have him have at least one character that kind of 
is doing something or is negatively involved with somebody and causing problems. Because otherwise he gets kind of... Like I said, when Chris was playing with us, because Chris was uh, uh, the one that was running the game at the time, good friend of ours, uh, he uh, he kind of got bored. Yeah. <laughs> I saw him sort Honestly. of sitting there uh, twiddling his thumbs as we were hammering on each other. And, and here's another important part, I think, of character creation that's intended, is when characters are created... The GM creates NPCs, and he tells them, tells other players what at least a one or two NPCs he's created to be involved with them. I think that that's really helped when I ran a game um, that involved the character that way. Want to go on to what uh, what some challenges we had? Maybe? I'm trying to think of what else I really liked about that. I think oh, the only yeah. other thing I, I really liked about that day, the other thing I really liked about the game was that for the the conflicts were very short. Oh yeah. Three rounds done. And either way, it was it was it was finished. We we had resolved whatever was going on. It wasn't a three-hour combat that went on and on and on. Now, you know, that being said, I I, I do like uh, there are some three-hour combats that have been very fun. But I, I just like this immediacy. There's a there's a conflict. There's a chance of winning. There's some so there's some doubt, and then it's over. But we literally went through several conflicts over the course of just a couple of hours. I remember playing an entire game in two hours start to finish. Exactly. And the conflicts are always exciting. On top of that, involved in the conflicts, there's, there, you, people who've won or lost these, the, the different rounds, the different parts of the round, get to, uh, they get to say basically what's happening. So if you just set the scene and get a response, and there's all these responses going back and forth as people are winning or losing throughout the conflict. And that's really cool. That's a lot of fun. What's also really interesting is when you're playing this game and when you're not directly involved in a, in a scene, it's still a hell of a lot of fun to watch. And that's one thing that actually I noticed. Even when I was not involved in a scene, I wanted to see what other people were doing. There wasn't a lot of cross-chatter going on. People were into it and were watching. And that's, uh, again, that's, that's, that's kind of rare I've seen in a lot of games. Sometimes the cross-talk happens and people don't, aren't quite as interested in what's happening. But I was pretty riveted each time. And if best interests are crossed right, what they're doing actually does make a difference to your character because they're going to get something that you want. You know, there's a good chance that's happening. So that, that's, that's also very exciting is the reason why you're interested. Now let's talk about problematic pieces. Things that, now these aren't actually problems I had with the game. These are challenges I faced. Uh, and again, I, I want to quantify that. I think this game is really well done. There's just one or two things that I had struggles with that I think that uh, you should be aware of and uh, just keep in mind. Uh, do you have any so far, Kyle? Well, I'll about? start with a, a couple things, actually. One of the things, when you're creating character, uh, character creation, best interests, in the, in the rule book, it says, if the player wants to leave it vague, they can leave it vague, and they can try and specify it later on. We did that, it didn't get really fully specified later on, and the conflict didn't really come out as much as I'd hoped for, even though the rule said just leave it for now, that's the player's decision, not the GM's, which is cool, and I think that makes sense, but it maybe just comes down to the player then. I would argue that best interest is one of the most important parts of the game. It like is. if you're going to, the forms are just die values. Like literally, you get yep. a d6, a d8, a d10, a d12, and another d6 and a d4 or something like that. You just spread them out. That's easy. The best interests are hard, and if you don't have them right, uh, you're right. It's it's a you sit there and you're like, well, I don't know what to do with this guy. Now I played an NPC and I saw a conflict wasn't happening because best interests really weren't. Actually, they're pretty good. Actually, there's some really good conflicts. But, you know, maybe they, some of them weren't great between certain players, and they, they almost were working together. I was like, oh, maybe I can mix it up. And I actually tried to, inserting NPC, as the rules suggest, to try and help drive that conflict. What I found was, um, one of the players, great friend, great person, a little too zen for this game. Uh, 
he I threw an NPC in, two other characters involved in there, and he decided it didn't involve him, even though the NPC was involved to be to be on his side. He decided that wasn't his involvement. And I I explained why it was his why he was involved, why the NPC was helping him, or, or trying to create the conflict between the two players. Right. But he just completely consistently insisted that in fact it was not his conflict. And because and that's a direct result, I think, is of, of fuzzy best interests. And I think if you have a fuzzy best interests, then you are going to have a fuzzy gameplay. You want to go for the jugular when you're doing best interests. Yeah. You want to absolutely be like, I want to kill your dad. I want to kill your mom. I want to destroy your life or something like that. It's got to be. It's got to be punchy. It's got to be direct. It's got to be. It's got to be hardcore. And it's got to be something that someone, when they, someone sees it, they're like, fuck no. I don't want that to happen. And if, yeah. they, if, if, if someone says, fuck no, then that's a damn good uh, best interest. Uh, because you've, you've sparked someone's interest, you spark someone's, uh, someone's emotional response, and you're going to get a damn good game. But yeah, I'm with you. So, yeah, it comes down to uh, players. If you're the zen kind of chill person, don't play in a wicked age. If you can pull out that, that bit of, you know, I hate you motherfucker, play in a wicked age. Yeah, you gotta have the fuck no. That's gotta be in there. Now, that's something I found a little bit, uh, a little bit tra challenging. There's two things I found challenging. Uh, the one thing was uh, was particular strengths. One thing that should be very, uh, one thing I always had problems with was in one of the particular strengths. And there's there's actually a couple of flavors of different particular strengths you can have. Things that make you different. And one thing I was always really struggling with is far-reaching. It's the one that has the least amount of rules attached to it, and it just says you can do what normal people can't. Uh, you can perform supernatural activities. And I found that to be a little bit vague, and I didn't know what to do with it. I guess that's sort of the idea. Is The idea is that, is that if you're playing like a djinn, like I was playing in, the, in one game, being able to grant wishes would be far-reaching. It seems just to be an encompassing thing to include the allowance for magic and those mystical things that maybe the other particular strengths don't necessarily include, or those superhuman abilities that are ones don't include that's it seem that's basically what it seems to be for. that makes sense now the thing i also had a problem with uh, and this is again uh not a criticism of the game but just something you want to be aware of is sometimes the oracle results get a little <laughs> weird <laughs> but that comes down to your creativity then it does you really have to start thinking about it like when you get a forest glade where a mysterious creature is and you're trying to figure out how that matches up with uh, a traveler who is thirsty for blood you really got to start thinking outside the box and this is where you really want to when you're doing the the oracle creation you got to talk you got to talk 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 to each other and just just jaw about how the the whole thing is going to gel just say whatever comes into your mind and spread the information around the players. The GMs have to talk about it to try and figure out what the hell these things mean. That's actually a good point, too, and that's another point, is once these oracles come out, once you talk about best interests and figuring what character you're going to play, talk. Just talk, talk, and talk. Don't sit there thinking quietly to yourself. That is not the way to... That's the depth. You have to... If you're having a problem with your best interest, you've got to say, guys, I'm having problems with my best interest. What do you think? And that way you can start talking about your different characters and have them, what do, we, what do I want to do? All right, you, then how do you want to oppose it? And that way you get that development of how you want these, these conflicts and disagreements and such to occur. The conversation on this is huge. You have to be in communication with each other, and which is actually really interesting because this is a competitive game. Oh but at God. the same time, you've got to be very transparent with each other in terms of, of, of your best interests, of in terms of your particular strengths, and even in terms of your forms. You want to let other people know what your weakest form is so they can create something that can defeat you with it. So you can get on the own list. So in a lot of ways, it really plays, screws around with people's uh, uh, sense of, of what competitive is. It's not holding things close to the chest. It's being open. 
but still playing it to the bone. I like that. Yeah, I like it too. I gotta tell you, it's uh, it's kind of like competitive uh, competitive fights. Like I remember when I was used to be in taekwondo, where you could be in a competitive fight, you would bow to each other to show respect, and then you'd beat the living hell out of each other, but according to the rules. And afterwards, you'd bow again, and that's what it felt like. Respect all the way through. So yeah, all in all, Wicked Age uh, is wicked fun. Yeah, I, I love it. It's <laughs> if I have three hours to kill, and I got two, you know, you can do less than that. Two hours to kill, and I got you know three, four friends kicking around, we'll play in a Wicked Age. Awesome. If you like this show, come on over to RPGpodcasts.com, where you'll find dozens more great role-playing podcasts. So that's basically our show. Uh, we just want to end with talking about just our current gaming right now that we're involved in. Current gaming. So, what, oh. you, what are you looking forward to, man? Uh, well, I'm looking forward to The Gift. Actually, I have not had a chance to play Burning Wheel. I have played Mouse Guard, but not the Burning Wheel itself, and I'm actually really excited about The Gift. And uh, I'm hoping it'll be a good time. Funny you should say that. I'm looking forward to running The Gift. I, uh, <laughs> I'm i hoping I can get eight people. Uh, I really am. Uh, it, the game is awesome with the eight people, so I'm hoping we can get enough people together, hopefully on the Sunday, to try that out. And we'll talk about it uh, next episode, I think. Uh, how that went, and what we thought about it, and, and how much of a enormous success or horrible clusterfuck it was. No, isn't the point supposed to be a clusterfuck? It is a clusterfuck. <laughs> it is an amazing clusterfuck. Dwarves versus elves. It's 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 epic. It's good times. Um, anything else you're looking forward to? Uh, just what we're pl- actually right now. We're also involved in a game called Dwarf Guard, which is we'll talk about another time. We will tease it there for all you listeners. Uh, a hack of a mouse guard that we're playing, and it's a lot of fun. In fact. Uh, John here is also writing that, and it's uh, very enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. I'm awesome to hear that it's enjoyable. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. <laughs> All right, yeah, that's that's it for me, and uh, I think that's uh, that's uh, that's what I'm looking forward to. How do you think this went, episode one? Uh, you're great. I'm great. We're both great. We're both great, yeah. We're so really, great. Really. We're and, so uh, great. Us talking together, it just, it, it's, it's like fusion. Like fusion? <laughs> like fusion power? Like fusion power. <laughs> We can just keep going and going, I think. Yeah, forever, until finally we, we explode and destroy the Earth. Well, I think explosion is imminent. Well, uh, until next time, that, that was You Can Hack It with Kyle and Zog. That's me. Put your pants off, girl, you got legs like shotgun. Music from You Can Hack It is by Buck65. You can get it free from his website. <laughs>